0: What's up, you guys? Sean Ross at Managing Editor, FightfulMMA.com. Go over there, get all of your MMA news. We have this channel on YouTube. Leave a thumbs up. Subscribe. We've got interviews. We've got boxing news, uh, MMA news, uh, post-show podcasts and wrap-ups, and a lot more. But over at FightfulMMA.com, go over there. Join in our Pick'Em every single week uh, and our live coverage as well. Like I said, we have a great community, like uh, thousands of comments each time there are uh, UFC events. Come over. Enjoy the fights with me and our, our good friends at Fightful. But today we are joined by Showdown Joe. Uh, James Lynch is on assignment. But Joe, it's been an insane week. Title fight, GSP, Matt Hughes. We got Prague last weekend. UFC 235. I'm ready to get into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting week. It's one of those weeks that we always look forward to, and or not look mm-hmm. forward to, and say, All right, finally, we got some good content. It's nice when it happens in between UFC events, but lots of UFC events and lots of stuff, and this whole Matt Hughes thing
0: has got me kind of like, oh, boy, oh, boy. So let's go ahead and talk about that. Uh, He got hit with a pair of restraining orders, one by his wife, Audra Hughes, and his brother, Mark Hughes, who some UFC fans may remember. Audra claims that in September and October of 2017, uh, she wouldn't give Matt the keys to his truck, saying that he shouldn't drive because of the brain injury that he suffered. Uh, in in his infamous accident, Matt would then allegedly snap and choke Audra in the shower before demanding the code to his gun vault while smashing her head against the wall. About a year later, another incident took place where Hughes had threatened to kill Audra because she had taken his phone after the retired fighter had allegedly been in contact with multiple women. Then in December, another incident allegedly happened as Matt hit his wife allegedly in front of their children, which prompted. Uh, Audra to file a restraining order the next day. Then Mark, his twin brother would file a restraining order after a dispute broke out, uh, over the ownership of a tractor when Mark's 15 year old son was driving it. And, uh, Matt would be accused of dousing the tractor and gasoline in an alleged attempt to destroy it. The restraining order says that Matt has to stay 500, uh, feet away from Audra and the children. And Mark says that Matt must stay away from his family. I'll say this, and I'll let you carry it away. I'm not surprised, motherfucker.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, first things first. There's a lot of stuff that happens outside of the you know MMA bubble, a lot outside of the octagon, outside of the cages and rings out there that you know we we sometimes don't know about. Sometimes it's never published. Sometimes it's never released, and that could go with all fighters, men and women uh, in general. Now, uh, in in terms of Matt Hughes, um, you know, I I, I don't want to. I don't want people to think that there should be an excuse that after what happened to him with the train accident and the brain injury that, you know, he's not fully there and he's making decisions and he's not doing the right thing. Listen, that, 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 you you can make that argument if you like, but if that's the case and he's got to be, you know, he's got to be, I don't know if supervised is the right word, but he's got to undergo some sort of treatment or help uh, to prevent him from taking to these situations to where they need to be. Obviously it sounds to me when you start looking at all these allegations Uh, Is there a situation here where this guy gets angry very, very quickly? Is he agitated? Do things build up for him to do this? Or is it just a matter of is he a bad guy? I don't think he's a bad guy. Um, I've I've had many scenarios with Matt Hughes over the years. So uh, it's not stuff I like reading. It's not stuff I like like seeing. Uh, But when it gets to situations like this, uh, obviously, you know, the the authorities need to intervene and and perhaps more. This needs to be extended out and, and stuff needs to be happening for Matt, right? And and the victims, of course.
0: To show you guys how in-key this is, I'm going to read you guys an excerpt of Sean McCorkle's review of Matt Hughes' book. Chapter 4. Matt cheats his way through college, getting A's in classes he proudly says he never attended. He and the other wrestlers bully everybody at Lincoln Junior College and break a bunch of shit. They tip over people's cars and flood the dorms on purpose. We reach a new low when he also makes light of the fact that one of his college buddies could not read or write. He then takes the time to bash Frank Trigg, saying, quote, he never became anything. A family member shoots himself over a girl, and Matt skips the funeral to decide to go to a wrestling meet instead. Instead of getting drunk, or after getting drunk one night, they take a bunch of girls, quote-unquote, swimming in some sort of pond, rainwater, sewer runoff. There's a whirlpool that's formed in the sewage pond, and Matt and two other drunk college kids get caught in the current. Matt pulls himself out, but the two other kids drown. He asked. He talks about how God save him. Saved him. Apparently, was God hating the other two drunk college kids. They feel so sorry for the two kids that died. The same night, they go out and get drunk again and look for girls.
1: So basically, I, you take what I said and just throw it out the window.
0: Uh, hey, hey. Gotcha. J- just, just providing multiple sides of this situation. We'll see how it unfolds. Maybe for Fightful Select members, I'll read that entire review. It's, it's for better or for worse, an entertaining one. Uh, one person whose character is not in dispute is George St. Pierre. And I'm, this is a, one of those times I'm really glad we have you on the show. Uh, you've known George for a long time. You've worked with him for a long time. I, I want to talk about the career, the decision, uh, what happened, what didn't happen. George St. Pierre hanging it up. You could really tell that the weight of fighting was something that that he had to bear for a very long time and that fight he he flat out said fight day is stressful for him joe and you can kind of understand that you can kind of see that in him he said that the reason he's retiring is to avoid the call outs to avoid that stress anymore i think he made the right call i would selfishly love to see george st pierre again but but tell me your thoughts your your feelings if you reached out to him anything like that
1: yeah, we, we had some conversations via text. Uh, you know, he said, thank you for the kind words that I mentioned on social media, uh, which is ironic because some people rip me uh, for posting that information or, or posting that those pictures and stuff like that of George and I back in the day But because um, it was never my intent. Uh, I, I, I remember vividly before the Johnny Hendricks fight, I knew that was it. I knew that was it for George. Um, he should have never fought Johnny Hendricks, uh, not in the mindset that he was in. Uh, but you know, being the consummate pro that he is, there was he signed on the dotted line. He's got to defend his title. Uh, but he had no business being in the cage with, with Johnny Hendricks that evening. Um, before a fight, George would always, he would never showcase his nervousness. He would always, he would always tell us or tell everybody that, you know, you, you got to align the butterflies. You're always going to be nervous. You just got to align that energy and make it positive and bring it to you. Um, in the cage. I remember when he fought, BJ Penn, I think, was the second time. Yeah, it was the second time. Um, there was a lot of talk, because that's when the first UFC primetimes came out. Uh, and it was fantastic production, fantastic content. And, you know, there was a lot of talk out there that people were worried for George. Like, BJ Penn's going to literally kill you. Like, it's going to be ugly. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the in the cage at the time at TriStar. Um, I think George was on a uh, a, a, a heavy bag, I was on a medicine ball, and my camera guy was behind me recording through the cage. It's a quote I'll never forget. I'm going to put it on social media one day. Um, When I asked him, I said, "Look, there are people out there that fear for you. People that are close to you, getting into this um, this fight with George or with uh, you know B.J. Penn. They fear for your life. They're scared of you. And the change in his demeanor, Sean, and everybody, the way he his body language shifted over to me." peered at me and looked me dead in the eye um i'm trying to remember the quote verbatim but he stopped everyone in the tracks and everybody i could see everyone's reaction when he said this he says i don't go to the octagon uh i don't go to the octagon to survive i go there to hunt and it just shut everybody up and i can remember seeing because my camp my my producer big bobby t james mentioned him a couple times on the show before jay or, or bobby t had a second angle And he had the headphones on like you and I have on right now. So he was hearing everything George was saying in the mic. And I remember him holding the camera like this. And when George made the comment, he just looked up and was like, shit, right? Like we just hit gold. And we put that on on sports at the time. But that's who George was. But the stress of competing, there's a lot more as to why he retired. Uh, But yeah, the stress of competing and just the difference in in the way the sport is today from when he started uh, was enough for him to say, you know what? Yeah, I got to go.
0: So when did you first know George St. Pierre?
1: Uh, 2001, I think. 2001 or 2003. I called his first four fights. Okay. Uh, if you go online and you look at his UCC? First four- UCC, yeah. You'll hear a very green uh, <laughs> Joe Ferraro. A very green Joe Ferraro. I mean, I don't have the broadcast, the acumen that I have now or the experience. But uh, I met George for the very first time. I think we were in um, Verdun. Verdun, I, th- I think that's where we, where I first met him, and I just knew right off the bat. He actually fought my instructor uh, one of the times, and you know, beat him up pretty good. Uh, but then, you know, in, in promoting George Saint Pierre through UCC, obviously we got closer and closer and closer. And there was, you know, the, the 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 my role with UCC at the time, as well as outside when we would have breakfasts or, or lunches and dinners and just meetings and stuff like that. I really got to know him back then, and I realized there's something special here. There's something really special here. And so I tell people all the time, I was blessed to be a part of a journey of a nobody. Nobody knew who he was to becoming one of the biggest pay-per-view stars of all time. So I've got that experience. I try and bring that uh, to this podcast. And so when I speak to a lot of fighters in general uh, to say, look, there's a recipe to become a superstar. And here's what's in there. Here's what it takes. And I saw it with George and... Um, I just learned along the way the stuff that he was doing, the stuff that uh, some of the promoters were doing, his management was doing, some of the stuff that him and I did with Sportsnet. I mean, he was, I think, three-time Athlete of the Year in Canada, you know, taking yeah. out guys like Sidney Crosby and, and, and you know, big-name sports athletes. He was three times, I think, if I'm not mistaken, sports Sportsnet Athlete of the Year. So there was a lot of things that we all did with George. It was all George, but everybody worked together as a team to get him to where he needs to be Uh, And I had a really small role, but I I, I felt like that role was absolutely huge because I loved it.
0: That ascent of George St. Pierre, a lot of people don't realize how quick it was. Two years after his pro debut, he's in the UFC and he's fighting Carl Parisian. Oh, and he's beating him. And I mean, it's an ascent. We've seen that happen before, especially modern day. We see that happened uh, like cynthia covillo will pop up in the ufc shortly after her pro debut and john jones just a few months nothing can replicate that but john jones all due respect to him wasn't facing ivan Menj- Menjivar, thomas denny pete Spratt on his first five fights it was kind of incredible when you see i mean and pete Spratt at the time was the most impressive one because he was fresh off of a ufc run the guy had just beaten robbie lawler yeah and George St. Pierre steps in and, and fights him, were you surprised that G- that GSP got that call so quick? Because I, yeah, I'm, I'm unfamiliar perhaps with the landscape back then and, and how quickly one can get a call. Or were you like, eh, yeah, it's probably about time, even though he's got five fights?
1: Uh, I would say pretty much every fight up until he became the champion, uh, I thought it was too early for George. Uh, every single fight to me, I was concerned. Uh, I didn't think he was ready but he just kept proving everybody wrong. The only person that kind of believed in him at the time uh, was Stefan Patry, who constantly put him uh, against talent that we all thought, man, he's not ready. I remember when he fought Thomas Denny, uh, his fourth fight, that was at UCC 12. I didn't think George was ready. I I didn't think George, and then when he fought Pete Spratt, I didn't think he was ready. And Carl Parisian, Jay Huron, uh, I didn't think he was ready. He got that Matt Hughes title shot, and then I remember thinking, man, this is too early, but let's give it a shot. Uh, and in losing in that, in that first round arm bar, I was just kind of like, man, that was just a mistake. You could have beat this guy. The man and was not, the, the
0: man was not a pro fighter three years before that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people was-
0: forget that.
1: Yeah. Well, he said he was overwhelmed, right? He said he was overwhelmed uh, in fighting Matt Hughes. He wanted the title shot, but mentally he wasn't there. And that was a learning lesson because he came back, returned to TKO at the time, took on Dave Strasser, uh, and then began that ascension uh, up the rankings. And then, you know, took on Matt Hughes uh, again to win the championship eventually. It was a fantastic fight. But then, you know, he didn't respect his opponents, didn't respect his, not opponents, opponent in Matt Serra. Uh, and that was the most extreme valuable lesson uh, in his career uh, to never underestimate a fighter because he got you know taught a lesson and then from there he went undefeated right he was thirteen and two after that fight uh, took out Kostchek, Hughes got his got his um, uh, title back from Sarah and then just proceeded to just do what he had to do uh, to defeat anybody and everybody that stepped in the octagon with him.
0: We talk about uh, on this show I think it was last year two thousand seventeen two thousand eighteen the quick rise of Volkan Ozdemir yeah. who had the benefit of being an MMA fighter for, I think, six or seven years. Oh, by the way, he kickboxed, too. And it took him 11 months to go from his UFC debut to a UFC title fight. George St. Pierre had a fraction of the fights. He had, like, less than half of the fights uh, than Ozdemir and did that in 10 months against Matt Hughes. He reeled off that incredible winning streak. You look at one of the most badass streaks in UFC welterweight history to get back to a title shot. In my opinion, you've got to put mayhem Miller, Frank Trigg, Sean Shirk, BJ Penn, and then Matt Hughes up there. That was just an unbelievable tear and GSP begging for that title shot. (laughs) It was that, that famous scene that you see he wanted, he wanted that title. He wanted that rematch with Matt Hughes and you saw the growth and the maturity and, uh, I mentioned this on on the the recap. That spot where he got caught with that that arm bar, uh, where he had the double wrist lock on the bottom, that's a spot I've integrated into pro wrestling matches since then. It, it's yeah. iconic. Like it, It's one that you look at, and it's, it's elementary. You lo- It's one that young MMA fighters look at. They see it, and they never make that mistake again. Kind of like how I mentioned the, the Von Flew thing. You never hold on to the double wrist lock from that point, and a lot of people learned a lot of things from there. When I started to watch UFC was about January 2007, so I wasn't that hip to the dominance of GSP and how impressive he was. So when I immediately walk in and I see him get clipped by Matt Sarah, a fight in which you could tell he had a ton of pressure on him for, uh, that you know I didn't know what I would see over the next decade. What was his mindset like going into the Sarah fight and coming out of it? The first
1: Sarah fight, uh, he basically, in essence, it's tough to say because I don't, I don't know if he'll, I don't think he ever admitted this or if it's something that was mentally he wasn't there because he thought, you know what, this guy doesn't deserve a title shot. I think it was because Sarah came off the Ultimate Fighter, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, um, and got the title
0: shot, so he won the, the the comeback season or whatever it was Yeah, season four, I think it was. But
1: um, it was one of those things where George was like, I'm gonna beat this guy, like really, like, I'm, there's no real point in doing this fight. I'll do it. I'll show up. And then rumors started swirling that, you know, he didn't train as hard. He, he basically put in a two-week training camp. At that time, I wasn't in Montreal uh, for that period to know if that, this is true or not. But all these people were telling me all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, he's going to be fine, but, you know, it's, it's Matt Sarah. He's going you know, to well, guess what happened? If I'm not mistaken, that was UFC 69 in Houston. Um, Houston? I think it was Houston. Um, yeah, so it was in it, Houston. it it was just a a situation where he didn't really, and he got caught. It wasn't even an overhand punch. I think, I think we broke it down one time on my show. It was almost a clothesline, like an overhand clothesline, old school wrestling clothesline that connected. uh, And that's what rattled George. And now there was so much time left uh, in the round that George just couldn't uh, recover. And Matt Sarah did a fantastic job eventually getting that fight down on the ground, connecting, connecting, connecting uh, and making George tap out. I mean, that's what, that's what really happened there. Right. So, uh, that, that was the learning curve. I remember him when I was talking to his sports psychologist uh, about a year or two later, one of the things that they made George do, and this happens a lot with psychologists and sports psychology in general, um, is, the, is they talk about uh, you know devastating incidents in their lives or, or something bad that happened. Uh, and eventually they talk through it. It could be emotional. It could be uh, angry. It could be whatever. But eventually they write it on a brick, right? They write it on a piece of paper. They tape it to a brick or they tie it to the tape to a brick and they just toss it into a, a river or a lake, saying, that's it, it's done. I think George went through that experience as well, uh, and he came back just stronger than ever.
0: Of course, after that, he had the first Koscheck fight, and this was a recurring theme, that he had beat so many people, they were running out of people for him to face the first time. He beat Matt Hughes again. You could definitely tell he was the better fighter in, in that feud. Just eviscerated, just dominated Matt Sarah. Uh, just dog walked John Fitch. And then there was the quote unquote super fight, which like I said, I had only started to watch UFC a couple of years prior, but I looked at that and I said, man, BJ Penn doesn't have a chance. I didn't know why they were booking this fight. I didn't give him an opportunity. I didn't give him a chance. I looked at BJ Penn's record and I was like, he's, he's not beaten GSP before he's moving up a weight class. He had been beaten by Matt Hughes before. But all of a sudden he goes on a three-fight lightweight winning streak and he gets this fight with GSP. I mean, good for BJ Penn. And the buy rate did great, over 900,000. And this is when GSP was a true pay-per-view juggernaut. Um, were you surprised that this, that the UFC was so quick to make this fight? And were you surprised by GSP's ability to draw such an insane rate at that point? I mean, Canada was popping.
1: Well, back then, Canada was huge. To go to your first question, no, I'm not surprised at all, because back then, uh, the fight with BJ Penn at UFC 58 was controversial. It was a split decision. Uh, it was close. People could people scored it different ways. Uh, a lot of people scored it for BJ Penn. Uh, and since that fight there, BJ Penn would go on this. this anytime he could talk about a rematch with George St. Pierre, he would do it. He would talk about it. He would promote it nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. To the point that it got under George's skin, uh, and it, it just woke up Joe Silva and, and Dana White and said, "This is a fight. People want to see this fight." You know, this—I'm it, it, not saying it was the money fight like uh, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, but you know, Conor McGregor talked himself into that fight, right? He convinced everybody. Then he convinced Floyd Mayweather. It's the same thing with with BJ Penn. He convinced them. And George, basically being the proud guy that he was or is, he basically said, "You know what? I, I need to write this wrong." That was a close fight. That was the first round I ever lost in MMA, he believed, was the first round against BJ Penn. Uh, didn't like the way that decision went. He says, you know what? I'm not going to make this guy pay. But BJ Penn had gone on that run uh, and just just destroying people that everyone started believing, man, this guy's dangerous. He's going to destroy George St. Pierre. And then George was like, what are these people saying? Really? They actually believe this as well? And it just was more fodder for the fight, right? And then the prime time and that – um, you know, when, when, when BJ Penn saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill Faraz hobby, uh, and just the crazy stuff that BJ was saying, uh, on camera, well, they would go back and forth, right. From Montreal to Hawaii, uh, or Montreal or Albuquerque to Hawaii. It was absolutely crazy. And it was just a perfect storm that evening. And I'll never forget, never, ever, ever forget the, you know, the people ask me sometimes, you know, what are your favorite walkouts uh, of all time? Those two uh, are in my top five from that UFC 94 event. That those walkouts, you knew, Sean. You were you, you were in a you were I, I was seizing the moment, right? Like Carpe Diem, you knew you were at somewhere special. Something big was going down right now, and I'm 20 feet away from it, 10, 15 feet away from when we were media row, and uh, you know that they both walked right by us, and we were just kind of like goosebumps, like oh my goodness, what are we about to witness right now?
0: The UFC wishes they had a guy that can consistently get 700,000 pay-per-view buys these days. Bisping and St. Pierre did 875, Hendricks 630. That was a bad day for GSP. 630 was a bad day. Uh, An underrated aspect of George St. Pierre is towards the end of his career, you had those people that said he was a boring fighter, that he relied too much on his wrestling. Something a lot of people don't talk about, and it's something I like to bring up when I notice it, when people fought George St. Pierre, a lot of the times they were never the same fighter again, Joe. This happened a lot. Carlos Condit. Take a look at his career trajectory before GSP. I'm talking like, I think he had like 12 out of 13 wins. Since then, he's put together two. Two. Uh, Johnny Hendricks, I mean, he he was able to uh, beat Robbie Lawler. A little bit questionable, but arguably... Arguably, you could say that he's really won two fights since that night. You look at Tiago Alves. Tiago Alves was on a seven, eight fight winning streak before GSP. He's never put together three in a row since then. Uh, Nick Diaz, I mean, I don't think it's any secret he was never quite the same. I mean, we assume he never fought. He's definitely never won since then. Dan Hardy could not compete at the top levels, we, we learned, even though he gutted it out against GSP. He was getting finished by the likes of Chris Lytle shortly thereafter. Um, I mean, he changed people, Joe, and being just ultimately defeated in body and mind is something that not a lot of fighters can do. (laughs) GSP was one of those guys that could do that to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would sit there and argue all the time that, you know, people, people would say that GSP was boring and, Stuff like that. He couldn't finish fights. And, and, you know, we had a conversation one time. Uh, I think we were at a, a, a place called Shakora in Montreal. It was me, George Faraz, Loazzo, my producer, Bobby T. Uh, and we you know, re- regular breakfast. Just, just shoot the breeze sort of thing. And we just got into the conversation of, of challengers, right? And becoming the champion was one thing, right? Once you're the champion, all you have to do is defend the title. You don't have to finish people. It's better to be champion than to be um, uh, a loser. That was the thing, right? Defend the title. Defend it in a manner where at least you win decisively three out of five rounds. Defend the title. If the finish presents itself, go in there and finish. Work for the finish, but don't go crazy trying to get that finish. And he also said there's a different mindset when it comes to challengers than it does when you're a champion. When you're a challenger, you've reached the apex of the mountain. You've reached the summit. Everything you have ever done in your career, you made it. This is it. You are willing to die in there. This is your, you've reached the ultimate test. You are ready to die. As a champion, you're not ready to die. You're ready to defend. Defend the summit, defend the apex, defend the titles. A big different mindset that he had uh, after a while. Now, being a champion, Sean, especially in George St. Pierre's case, means you're a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Endorsements, sponsorships. When you're not a champion, don't make that money. Life is different. You have to work harder. But when you're the champion and they say UFC welterweight champion and you've got a belt in every single one of your pictures – It's a different ballgame. You protect that image. You protect that persona. Fighting is just part of the job.
0: Anybody who follows me knows that I love stats. Here's an interesting one. He currently holds the record for most consecutive title fight wins with 12. Uh, John Jones technically can't hold that record because of his no contest. But uh, John Jones at UFC 235 Will try to break the record for most uh, title fights consecutively without a loss. Uh, Demetrius "Mighty Mouse" Johnson is also up there. Anderson Silva should be, but people don't make didn't make weight. Travis Luter kind of cost him that record. But uh, George St. Pierre, in the annals of time as a middleweight champion, you know you, you can say what you want about the fact that he beat Bisping for it, but uh, that was a hell of a fight too, and an amazing comeback but he stated that he wanted to fight Habib Nurmagomedov. Part of me agrees with Dana White when Dana White says, well, we don't want him vacating that title too. But then at the same time, I see Colby Covington stripped of a – you you could make a tournament full of people that have not lost their titles but haven't had to give up their titles, Joe. I joked on social media and I thought – Uh, If only they had a division between 155 and welterweight where people could go and avoid this interim mess. Do you think they should have made this fight? I think Habib and GSP is... You're you're asking for a million pay-per-view buys easily.
1: Uh, Should they have made this fight from a business perspective? Absolutely. Me speaking... (laughs) As of uh, as as someone that knows George, no, I would not want to. Dude, I didn't want to see him fight Bisping. Okay, like I didn't want that fight. You remember that? I, I was like, dude, don't fight, don't fight, don't fight, don't fight, don't fight. And he fought anyways. But um, to to cut all that weight to get to the weight that he would have to compete against against a a, a guy like uh, Nurmagomedov. That's not to say George couldn't defend those takedowns and not take down uh, Nurmagomedov bigger, stronger, uh, potentially. Right? I get that. I understand that. But um, for Georgia's sake, I, I didn't think it'd be a good, especially the younger fighter, younger, hungrier, and stuff like that, right? Different ball game altogether. But from a money-making perspective, I think it would have been a fantastic fight. it had been a great payday for him. Um, I still really, I mean, if there was a fight that I want to see, even though I still disagree with my own brain thinking about it, it would have been the Conor McGregor fight. But the cachet of Conor McGregor has slightly dipped a little bit, especially with Habib Nurmagomedov being the champ. That, you know, is the next fight to make sort of thing, right? But uh, yeah, from a business perspective, Sean would have been a great, great, um, you know, moneymaker for the UFC, George and, and Habib, but for, for George himself, I don't like it. I don't like it at all.
0: Any final thoughts on the career of George St. Pierre? What do you see him doing next? He says he's going to keep training, uh, two times a day, the following day, even Tyron Woodley said, yeah, how about you You train with me? That would be neat. <laughs> so, uh, what do you see in the future for GSP?
1: I'm not too sure yet. He didn't answer some of my questions and went back and forth. Um, Mm -hmm. He can do whatever he wants. I know he's going to keep training. He's a gym rat for God's sake, right? He's just, he loves martial arts. He loves learning. He's, he believes that Bruce Lee adage that uh, you should be more scared of someone that knows one kick and, and has practiced it a thousand times than somebody that knows a thousand kicks. Right. So he likes to drill. He's all about muscle memory He's all about being in shape, eating healthy. Um, you know, back in the day, this guy could – consume. no, I, he was not a healthy eater, Sean. This guy could destroy like three egg McMuffins uh, and a Big Mac combo and a heartbeat, right? So, and, but he realized the importance of nutrition. Um, but he likes – he wants to be a role model. He wants to live that lifestyle. Um, movies, movies, commercials, endorsements, we'll see where they go. But uh, he's got you – know, he, he's George. He can do a lot of things.
0: Well, speaking of championships, boy, was there a revolving door. We got two new interim champions coming. What? Wait. You mean to tell me that Tony Ferguson isn't interim champion anymore and was offered an interim title fight, rejected it. Don't blame him. Interims mean jack shit to the UFC. Instead, it's going to be Max Holloway moving up from featherweight to face Dustin Poirier in a rematch for the interim Uh, Lightweight title. Now, do both of these guys deserve it? Holloway, I don't know. Uh, Not when you've got Poirier and Ferguson there. Not when you've got Habib sitting out out of stubbornness, essentially, waiting out Ramadan. What did you think when you heard this?
1: Well, Based on your mild explanation, which I'm going to get you to expand upon shortly, I got the news, I read it, and I'm like, how does this make sense? Where in the trajectory does this interim title fight make sense? Where? How? And I, I, I can't figure it out. I saw I, um, I saw Dustin at the last Titan FC event. Um, we had a chat. Jesus, that guy ever always in shape. Holy smokes, is that guy fit? We just, you know, we just shot the shit. How's it going? What's going on? How's everyone? How's the wife, kids? Good. Blah 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 blah. I didn't see this coming. Uh, uh, and the whole—I don't get the Max Holloway moving up thing. I don't know. It's—it's just—it's uh, strange. It's strange. It's—it's be, uh, it's weird because Max Holloway wins this fight. We get a damn good fight with Habib. Dustin yeah, wins. Well, maybe, this fight. maybe where's Tony? Yeah, yeah.
0: That, but that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense, Sean. They got to do Tony and Habib. They have to do Tony and Habib if they want to do. Holloway and somebody else. Uh, I God, this doesn't make any sense. Oh, uh, it's rough. I don't know. I mean, I get Ferguson's line of thinking. What I presume, he had the interim title. He had it taken away from him. It doesn't mean anything. And there are people that have the balls to say, "Oh, Ferguson needs to do this. Ferguson needs to do that. Ferguson needs to do whatever the well, whatever he damn well pleases, and he deserves it." The man. Just turned 35. He's lost one fight in the UFC. That includes tough. I mean, Pettis, Lee, Dos Anjos, Barboza, Josh Thompson. He's beaten them all. I I don't know at what point. This and not. Oh, by the way, by the way, six out of his seven fights of his last seven fights, fight of the night, performance of the night. Something like that. The guy's got money too. People are going to miss Tony Ferguson when he is gone. Do not take Tony Ferguson for granted because for a couple of years I did. I was like, this guy is a nut. He's a, there's crazy and there's a good kind of crazy. He's a good kind of crazy. He's the kind of crazy every MMA fan should appreciate. The kind of crazy that will get you bloodied up with a no name, then you, Darst choke them until they pass out, yeah that's a kind of crazy I want, you know, hey, I'm not much for him doing Van damme splits in between two medicine balls while while doing somersaults and lifting at the same time. I don't know about that, but man, this guy has gotten a raw deal over and over and over again, and it's a shame because his career has been slowed down he it, He spent uh, it took him eleven months to get back in the cage between two thousand and sixteen and seventeen. He missed a full year. And now I want to see this guy fight. I, I hope he does soon. But that's not all we got on that show, Joe. Israel Adasanya against Kelvin Gasolum. They're not waiting wasting any time. Um, Robert Whitaker says, I'll be back in the summer. UFC says, we're not waiting. I'm okay with this to a degree because Whitaker has had some trouble getting in the cage, staying in the cage. And I'm okay with that. Uh, but... I'm tired of the champ champ era. I'm tired of the, oh, I want a title. I immediately want to move up, move down. I want to wait era. I'm tired of the, oh, I want a title. So now I want a box era. I'm sick of this shit. And I hope whoever wins this interim title wants to fight the person who holds the real title in both cases, Joe.
1: In essence, now correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like in your brain, my brain, my brain, many of the traditional martial arts fans, mixed martial arts fans, it sounds like we need a sanctioning body. Yeah. Sanctioning body to determine who deserves the next title shot. Whamma never die. Right. Whamma lives forever.
0: Where's that belt at?
1: Right. So it's one of those things where it's like, this kind of stuff should be mandatory, but it's not because the UFC is not a sanctioning body. They're a promotion. They're a business. They can do whatever the hell they want. And, some of the fighters disagree with what the UFC wants to do, and they'll do their own thing and then end up going to, you know, head-to-head with Dana White or, or Sean Shelby or whomever and you know, come out on the losing end.
0: Cody That's Coddigan. what pisses me off about Dana White. I'll do respect to the guy. He's done a lot of great things for the sport. But when he has the balls to say, oh, I don't want to make a 165-pound title because it'll just be guys who can't win the title, there is a roster full of guys who haven't lost titles that don't have them. Daniel Cormier vacated his championship. John Jones didn't have a title for a long time that he had never lost. Uh, Robert Whittaker, his championship is about to have an interim title. And the reason that Robert Whittaker had that championship was because a guy who didn't lose it was there. Uh, St. Pierre vacated his championship. Uh, Kobe True. Covington stripped of an interim title. Conor McGregor was stripped of a featherweight title. Uh, I think Ferguson and... McGregor were stripped of titles, actually. McGregor never truly lost either one of his championships, although you know it's hard to say that with him losing to Habib. Uh, You look at it, TJ Dillashaw is moving down instead of defending his title. You've got Jermaine Durandamy ran from her division. There's a whole ton of people who never lost their titles. So to say that, oh, well, we can't create a weight division where we have dozens of people willing to compete in it because – It'll be people who can't win. I'm thinking, man, that is tone deaf.
1: Dana White's always made decisions. You know, he's made fantastic decisions. Let's not kid ourselves, guys. But he's also been slow to react, uh, and and sometimes, um, sometimes, I want to stress the word "sometimes." Slow to evolve, right? Slow to realize, holy smokes, this is available to us. We can do this. AKA, you know, women's MMA, right? I mean, that's another story altogether. I won't even get into that one Um, because he blasted me when I brought up women's MMA a long time ago. Uh, it'll never work in the UFC. Crazy the um, way it
0: works out, huh?
1: Yeah. Um, but it took Ronda Rousey for him to realize it, right? But um, there's a lot of things that, that you know, I don't know if, if even Sean Shelby or McMahon or the people around Dana, if they could sit him down and say, hold on, let's take a look at this option. I'm sure they do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure they have these board meetings. But, you know, Dana has uh, got to understand He's also a businessman, not just a promoter, uh, but a businessman going out there and working on deals. All of a sudden, you want to get a massive deal. Uh, you know, Look at your shirt. You want to get a deal with Nike, right? Well, you got to prepare for that meeting. You got to know who you're meeting, who you're going up against, and, and if you want X amount. So there's always things going on in his head. Uh, and then he finds out that this person got injured, or, or you know, Robert Whitaker wakes up uh, and's got, got a hernia. Uh, and then, you know, Conor McGregor's just being crazy, He's throwing a, you know, a, a thing through a bus. There's always something going on, and it all affects Dana White, right? I don't want to defend the guy. I'm not trying to defend the guy. I'm just letting sure. people like, just think about this for a second, the amount of stuff he has to deal with that before he can even talk about a cruiserweight division or a 165-pound division, he probably does and then gets inundated with just stupidness or craziness, right? So it's it's there's got to be something that said, Dana, can you just sign off on this? Here's why. Just sign off on this, please right? Here's why. Here's a quick um, uh, presentation. This makes sense. Let's just do it. Makes sense. More money. Get her done.
0: UFC Prague was this weekend. Uh, Liz Carmouche picked up a, a big but boring win. Peter Jan won. Uh, Mikhail Alexacek uh, beat John Volante. You had Anka defeating Abreu. I talked about these fights on, our, on the, the post show. Go check it out. YouTube.com slash Fightful Boxing. The two things I want to touch on quickly, Stefan Struve picking up a come-from-behind win over Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Seems like he's going to hang it up or at least entertaining the idea at 31 years old. And then Tiago Santos with a big win, a patient win over Jan Blachowicz. Considering that Tiago Santos beat this weekend's title contender at uh, middleweight, I think that he should be in the conversation, should be in line for a title shot. But uh, what do you think of Struve and Tiago Santos?
1: Uh, well, Stefan Struve. First of all, Stefan Struve's lucky I didn't record all of us in Kazakhstan, especially with him and Gilbert Burns, okay? Those two guys are, are disasters. They are freaking hilarious, Sean. Uh, I'll just say whatever happened in the dressing rooms uh, is their fault, and that's it. Um, they're hilarious. In terms of Stefan Struve, though, getting that submission uh, arm triangle choke victory uh, and wanting to walk away, especially, and he said it in the post-fight interview, you know, his heart, um, and people mistook that for, you know, his heart for fighting, no, his heart le- legit, there's issues with his heart, right? Like there's legit physical issues with his heart. Therefore, um, you know, his health is far more, uh, a concern than, than, you know, continuing to compete. Um, in my opinion, if he wants to walk away, he's called it a career. Hey man, hats off to you, bud. No problem. No problem. Uh, and by the way, I can tell you stories about Stefan Strew and Shorty Torres, those two guys having a conversation. I should have got pictures of that, Sean. It was just ridiculous. (laughs) Um, And I'm sorry. The second question was regarding Tiago Santos's victory. Correct. Yeah. Uh, I was watching the fight and immediately when I was, when I was seeing Tiago as patient as he was, was just that he's fighting five rounds, right? He's got to be smart. He's got to be intelligent. And I I felt like tweeting out, there's no business Tiago Santos should ever be fighting in a five round fight. Make every single one of his fights, three rounds, especially if he gets a title shot as well. We'll see some crazy excitement as well. He doesn't have to pace himself.
0: Warms my heart to see people not cutting weight yeah. like like they used to. I mean, especially when they succeed. makes me very happy. You know, for a long time, Joe, I beat that drum of middleweight's going to look a lot different. Middleweight's going to look a lot different. I need to get a snapshot of the rankings about a year and a half ago. No Bisping, no Santos. Uh, even Eric Anders has hit the bricks. Like yeah. Anthony Smith. Left, uh Machida, gone. Silva, practically gone. It might as well be gone. Belfort, gone. Like all these people. Light heavyweight is uh, just from six months ago, seven months ago to six months from now, going to be completely different, especially when Rockhold shows up as well. Also, I think Struve gets a Bellator offer if he leaves UFC. We have,
1: What's your take on on uh, Belfort could be signing with one championship and not
0: yeah. Bellator? It makes sense. Highest bidder. Go to the highest bidder. I'm not – are we surprised? I'm not. No, no. Just thought about it
1: and I thought to myself, I feel bad because sometimes here in North America we've got our our, our myopic mindset. We only focus on North America. I had this very conversation last night, Sean, uh, and everybody tuning in right now and listening later on um, with the board of directors for the Soccer Association that I'm with here uh, and just a myopic view of what – how – North Americans, Canadians, and Americans have regarding soccer in comparison to Europe. It's the same thing. We you know, we feel like we lose these guys, the Muddy Mouses and the potential Vitor Belforts, and um, they go over to 1FC or they go over to Ryzen uh, and stuff like that. But it's a big world out there, and these guys deserve to get paid. You can say all you want about Vitor Belfort, former UFC champion, uh, albeit controversial, and he's already made a lot of money. So what? Go make more. This guy's yeah. putting his life on the line
0: all the time, TRT or not. Come on. UFC 235 on March 2nd. You can stream it right on fightful.com. We have a link where you can buy it. You can join in, in our live coverage and uh, talk with hundreds, dozens of others uh, that will be watching the show. We're going to give you some odds, some predictions. Anthony Smith taking on John Jones. Jones, a minus 850 favorite. Anthony Smith, a plus 575 favorite. When I look at this, I think that Smith has to pressure early and make John Jones know that he is in a fight from the outset. Smith is really good at like popping in and pepper people, peppering people. But he, a lot of times when he does that, he's doing that to get their hands up. That way he can open up that way. He can push people up against the fence and throw elbows. Jones on the other hand is really good at making people think he's going to attack against the fence to get away from the fence. Um, Jones also, when you get into clinch range, you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know if he's going to foot sweep you, foot stomp you, go after your knees, rip your shoulder out of its socket. John, yeah. uh, I mean, there, there was a nickname in old ECW, the innovator of violence. John Jones is truly an innovator of violence. He will do whatever it takes to finish that fight, legal or illegal <laughs> sometimes. He will do whatever it takes to get out of that cage with a victory. Um, there there's a lot of things you can tell about John Jones, even though he is really hard to read his level change, whether it's half assed or not, will tell you what his intentions are. If he's trying to set you up for something else or, or if he's truly trying for a takedown also, he improvises incredibly well, how I mentioned the innovator of violence. He is very, very good at finding a way to turn any situation into an offensive maneuver and uh, as we've seen before, Anthony Smith against Hector Lombard, when people write Anthony Smith off, he's very dangerous. He was screaming at Hector Lombard in that fight, if you remember. Ask him if he knew his name now. Well, there's a lot of aspects of, of Anthony Smith's personality that, that could shine through. But same height, 8-inch reach disadvantage. you got to go Jones with your, with your head here, I think. It's, it's impossible to pick against Jones. What do you see happening, Joe? Okay, well, first things first, let's cross our fingers this fight takes place. Yeah. First things Let, first. Let's, let's mention that. First fight since, what, 2014 with no drama from John Jones? And that being said— It's Tuesday of fight week. It's Tuesday of fight week, and he had to get licensed <laughs> for this fight specifically. That's what I'm considering no drama. Uh, Gustafson had that whole mess, they moved the show. Uh, The Cormier fight, they had to overturn it. The Cormier fight before Jones failed, or there was the Jones drug test issue. Um, The OSP fight, well, OSP had to step in for Daniel Cormier, who had an injury. Then there was the the Johnson fight where Jones got stripped. There was the Cormier fight with the coke test. There's the Cormier fight where Jones tore his meniscus and they had the big brawl. Uh, even, Even then... Cormier was a replacement, I think, for Gustafson, who was supposed to be in that fight. Mess. A mess. And even the Teixeira fight, they had to reschedule that one. Before that, Gustafson, that that was a questionable decision. Before that, there was Sonnen, and they had to move that show. It's been years since we had a John Jones fight without any real drama, Joe. So... Back to my point.
1: <laughs> it's only <laughs> Tuesday of fight week. Right? Yeah. Hey, let's let's hope this fight takes place. Okay. By all accounts, I mean, history may prove us otherwise. It reminds me of dealing with all my Canadian friends here that get pissed off that it's snowing and freezing in February. live here your whole damn life. You know that in February it's going to freeze. Well, a John Jones fight, no longer will we ever be surprised if the fight doesn't take place. Number one. Number two. If it does take place, there's always something inside of me, I've been around this game uh, for the better part of 20 years, that on Sunday morning at 1 a.m., will I be surprised if I hear and new? Okay? No, I will not be surprised because Anthony Smith has that ability to shock and awe anybody, including John Jones. Three, I also know John Jones is a special talent, a special mixed martial artist with. People call freakazoid sort of limbs and length and um, th- the way he can execute technique is super ridiculous. So in breaking down this fight here, mentally speaking, uh, John Jones will likely, more than likely be able to protect his chin because if he doesn't, he will go to sleep uh, or get TKO'd. But John Jones will pick apart Anthony Smith, provided I – mean, I, I mean, Anthony Smith's a tough guy. Tons of experience going way back to Strikeforce days. hmm but mentally, he's fighting John Jones, not just physically. Okay, mentally, he's fighting for the world title. Um, it's a lot to take on, and we'll see what's going to happen. That the Anthony Smith that's going to show up there, but John Jones, he said it. You know what? I want to fight X amount of times in 2019. Bring them all on. Uh, no, this is a guy that maybe wants to recoup a lot of money, Sean, and he's got to fight to recoup that money.
0: If I am Johnny Walker and Volkan Ozdemir, I weigh in at 204.9 pounds on yep. Friday. Mm-hmm. You just never know. Tyron Woodley back in the in action defending against Kamaru Usman. You know Kamaru very well. Kamaru won Dana White over, and that's not easy to do. Will yep. Will that be enough to stop Tyron Woodley? Because they have very similar skill sets.
1: Yeah, yeah. but you can make the argument Tyron is more explosive than Kamaru. Kamaru may not be as fast, but he's very precise with his striking. It'll be interesting to see because mentally speaking, when I think about these two guys on fight night, uh, and, and, and you know visually I can't see it properly, but I think Tyron's going to be bigger than Kamaru Usman. So Kamaro's wrestling technique, not strength, but technique is going to have to be on point uh, because if you can put Tyron Woodley on his back, you're going to increase your chances of winning. If you want to go toe-to-toe with him, it's very, very explosive. Remember, he went toe-to-toe with Stephen uh, Wonderboy Thompson twice, okay? Uh, so, you know, I, I, I would argue that, that Wonderboy is a better striker than Usman, right? So I think the wrestling is key for Kamaru here. If he can some way, somehow, even clinch, get this fight down to the ground, put Tyrone Tyrone on the ground and keep him there uh, and work for a decision. Work for a decision because Tyrone can end this fight at any time. And that's taking, taking nothing away from Kamara Usman's striking or skill set. It's just Tyron's powerful. Very, very powerful.
0: I am actually going with Usman in this fight.
1: Oh, there's no doubt. Like, don't even pick yourself
0: I'm going. Yeah, I, I think I think that at plus 160, there's some value there, although it's a pretty good line. I'm picking him to beat Tyron Woodley. Um I think a lot of things, it might just be Tyron Woodley's time. He's, he's going to be 37 soon, but I've said that a lot, and it, it didn't end up happening. I think, actually, Usman's going to be bigger in the cage than uh, Woodley. Now, will that height difference affect Kamaru Usman from getting his hips underneath Tyron Woodley? That's a question that I have. Uh, I get the feeling a lot of this fight might be up against the cage, and that is okay. not going to be a crowd pleaser, but... I can see it. We also have Ben Askren, minus 280, Robbie Lawler, plus 240. This is, without a doubt, the biggest test of Ben Askren's career, in, in, my, in my opinion. And that being said, I, I think Robbie Lawler has seen better days. I'm expecting Ben Askren to get the job done, grind out a victory, and, and do what he does, wrestle and probably earn a decision win, Joe. I'd like to know
1: where the money's coming from on this fight because at minus 280... For a guy that's never competed in the UFC, uh, I, I'm betting that those odds are going to shrink closer Probably. to fight time, right? Because then the mainstream, the mainstream—I could be wrong—but the mainstream viewer is going to catch on to this and be like, "Wait a second, who, who's this Ben Askren? I've never heard of this Ben Askren." Robbie Lawler's the man, former champ. Blah 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 blah. blah. Boom, money goes on Robbie Lawler, right? What do you think so- your
0: Vegas betting is from tourists as the show gets closer?
1: Oh, yeah. I think the numbers are going to change in this fight. I could be wrong, but I think the numbers are going to change in this fight here. Uh, I I, I think I'm I'm trying to analyze what you just said in the fact that Ben Askren is going to have to grind out a victory. That's the only way I think he's going to beat Robbie Lawler because he sure as hell is not going to be able to strike with him. But Robbie needs one punch to land, and this thing changes very, very quickly. Uh, Is he a shell of his former self? You can make that argument, um, but it remains to be seen. Do you think Ben Askren is going to throw late kicks? No. No. All right, so, and, and, you know, Lawler's a damn good wrestler. He's got pretty good damn, you know, takedowns or takedown technique or takedown defense, excuse me. Uh, I think we're going to have a fun fight here.
0: I think Cody Garbrandt is in a must-win situation against Pedro Munoz, and it is not easy to just win against Pedro Munoz. He's won six of his last seven. His only loss is to John Dodson via split decision. His last loss before that was a split decision, Uh, against Jimmy Rivera. Nobody has ever finished Pedro Munoz. Cody Garbrandt's going to look to do that. I'm just glad that Garbrandt is off the carousel. He should not have gotten a rematch against TJ Dillashaw. That shouldn't have happened. Uh, I don't necessarily like that that happened, but um, I like that he's back in action this weekend, and I'm picking Munoz to beat him. Wow. Picking Munoz at plus 145 to beat the minus 165 Garbrandt. How? Submission. Damn. Yeah. Then I have to go
1: Cody Garbrandt by knockout. Have to. Have to. Ladies and gentlemen, watch your fives on this one. Well, you're not going to put five on Cody Garbrandt anyways.
0: I think that Munoz pressures Garbrandt. Garbrandt does something and ends up getting submitted because – I, I don't doubt that Cody Garbrandt could take down Pedro Munoz, but do you want to? Do you want to? Is that something that you want to do? I don't know. I, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably try to stand up and strike with him, but Munoz can be dangerous on the feet and, and uses it to set up other things.
1: Ladies and we gentlemen, have- you're either with Team Showdown or Team Sean Ross Sapp on this one. <laughs> you got to make a decision on that live chat. Forget about Sean Ross Sap. He's a fool. You're going to go with Cody Garbrandt in this fight.
0: I want your picks on some other ones. Johnny Walker, minus 135, uh, against Misha Surkinov, 115. This is a big one for Johnny Walker. Huge. You have Jeremy Stevens, a plus 205, against the minus 245, Zabit. A oh, wow. big one for Zabit. And Tisha Torres and Wiley Zhang, a virtual pick Torres, a plus 105. Zhang, a minus 125. Uh, some good, high-level competitive fights right there, Joe.
1: Yeah, man. It's just – It's I mean – Tisha Torres is number seven, right? She's real good. Yeah, Zang's fourteen or fifteen. Really, really strange. There, there's my—I think that's my—I got five on it right there on Tisha Torres because that's just a strange. Unless it's just something we don't know. I, know. I know, I know, Zang's good, but yeah, I don't know. And the, the oh man, Zabit at excuse me minus two forty-five against Jeremy Stevens. He might want to put five on Jeremy Stevens, although Zabit could be the next. Um, you know, he, he's a big thing already. Right, yeah, he's a big thing in this division. People are paying attention. He's a prospect and huge, huge, huge fight here. He defeats Jeremy Stevens. All eyes on the Right, I mean Mago Sheriff is going to be just all over the place here. And of course, uh, you know you're, you're putting me on a spot here with Johnny Walker and, and Misha Sirkinov, especially <laughs> Misha being uh, Canadian. You know he lives what 20 minutes from or 25 minutes from my house. Uh, that's a tough one. I like Johnny Walker, but uh, this one I will refuse. Uh, to offer up my thoughts. And that's not saying that I'm saying Misha Serkinov's going to lose. I think it's a very close fight, and it could go either way.
0: I'm going Tisha Torres. I think she is a much better fighter than Zhang. I, I, Zhang has some okay wins, but I don't think she's faced anybody the level of Tisha Torres. I've got Zabit. Um, although Jeremy Stevens does what Jeremy Stevens does. And I'm going with Johnny Walker. I think that he has some some nice tools elsewhere on the show. Alejandro Perez plus 165 against Cody Stamen a minus 190. Diego Sanchez plus 235. Mickey Gall minus 275. And you have Frankie Signs 165, plus 165, and Marlon Vera, a minus 190. Charles Bird a plus 105. Edmund Shabazian minus 125. Anything stand out to you in these, these fights? Uh some some good talent in a few of those fights yeah lots of talent but we're, I'm, I'm
1: focusing on the Diego Sanchez Mickey Gall fight and I want to know if you're gonna put five on Diego Sanchez because
0: yep. I would yep. no you're gonna do going, it yeah I'm going I'm gonna I'm going official with that a- after our predictions yeah
1: yeah I'm gonna I'll, I'll go with Mickey gall on this one here uh other than that I mean the I mean Marlon Vera I think emerges victorious in this fight here uh Hannah Cyphers who I know very well obviously Pollyanna viana's got lots of love from a lot of people um Hannah Cyphers doesn't go away doesn't go away. She will not go away. I could put five on her. She won't finish Pollyanna, but she's tough as nails.
0: Yeah, speaking of, uh, Pollyanna-Viana is a minus 280. Seifers is a plus 240. Mazzani, a plus 360. chiason a pl- or minus or 450. That is UFC 235. Make sure you guys join us. We are on podcast platforms everywhere after the show. But now it's time for my UFC 235. I got five on it. These are flyer picks. I do not necessarily pick these people to win. But if you got five extra bucks, put five down on it. Usually you just need to to hit on one of these three to um, end up winning. Uh, I've had somebody win on, I think, gosh, four out of five of my I got five on it picks so far. They are always underdog picks. Um, I've got Gina Mazzani plus 360 against Chiasen, although I'm picking Chiasen to win that. There's a lot of unknown in women's MMA and almost anything can happen. There's a lot of talent discrepancy there. Mickey Gall, a minus 275. I'm taking 235 plus on uh, Diego Sanchez. I think that Diego Sanchez's experience could uh, do him well. I think that he can make this fight messy and end up taking advantage of Mickey Gall. And then... I got to do it. Anybody plus 575, I got to just take. I got to take because I'm not ruling out the possibility that John Jones, the minus 850, gets DQ'd in this fight. It could happen. It could happen. Make sure you guys visit FightfulMMA.com. Joe, as we wrap up, what do you got going on this week?
1: Same old, same old, man. Looking forward to this card here, but uh, you know, same old, same old on my end over here. So you're having a good time.
0: Follow me at Sean Ross SAP. follow us at Fightful MMA. Leave us a thumbs up here on this video. Uh, leave us a nice iTunes review. That stuff really helps. A lot of us watch us on YouTube, or a lot of you watch us on YouTube and uh, don't get that option to review, so just head over there and do that. Fightful, Subscribe. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming.